right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, here at Trinity Church, we are characterized by a few distinctives. And one of those distinctives is expository preaching. And that just means that we take a book of the Bible, we take sections of the Bible, and we preach through them verse by verse, sometimes section by section, uh, depending on the context. Uh, but that, what that means is that we are dependent on the text. We are dependent on the text of God's word uh, to tell us what we need to hear, to tell us uh, how we should live. So that is my goal today. That is our goal every week is to say what the text says and to have it tell us what we must do and how we should live. And in this case this morning, how we should pray. So as Todd mentioned last week, prayer is a constant struggle for Christians, and it has been from the beginning. In Luke 11.1, 1, a passage parallel to this one, the disciples actually asked Jesus, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. Teach us to pray. This struggle involves matters of discipline, setting aside time to praying, as well as avoiding pitfalls like pride, as Todd talked about last week. But a constant refrain from new believers especially is, I don't know what to say. What do I say when I pray? This passage, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, is a model prayer that has served believers since Jesus handed it down in this sermon. Uh, the Didache, a very early Christian document that has some close similarities with Matthew in some places, also gives the Lord's Prayer as a model for Christians. It's a very early model for prayer that just continues to bear fruit. It's tempting to treat it as a formula, but it's clearly meant only as a model. Jesus says, pray like this, pray in this way. It's not meant to be a formula. You know, we don't need to pray these exact words for our prayers to have their effect. It's a model. But even still, since it's a model, it's worth unpacking the themes here that are present so that we can test our own prayer lives against it. So the first point I have is that prayer is a family affair. Prayer is a family affair. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Uh, and actually, at this point, I'm going to read the entire passage. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Uh, pray with me. Father, as I come before you today, Lord, I'm conscious of how uh, helpless I am and how helpless we are to uh, rightly divide your word without your spirit. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we all come together to this text, uh, that you would open our eyes 
to see uh, what is here and what it has to say to us uh, through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that this would all be to your glory and to our joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, my first point is prayer is a family affair. Jesus says that we are to address God as our Father in heaven. This title should come as no surprise to us, even in Matthew 6, which is relatively early in Matthew, because Jesus has been calling God, Heavenly Father, Father in heaven, throughout. It's one of the primary ways that Jesus refers to God in Matthew and really in all of the Gospels. And this title here, coming in this model prayer, means that Jesus' followers should also address God as Father. In commanding his followers to use this particular title, this particular address, Jesus makes it clear that his followers are entitled to the same benefits that come along with being part of a family. Children rightly look to their parents to provide for them. All they have to do is ask. Jesus positions prayer here as a request from a child to his father, expecting to receive what he needs. But there's also Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. And while God is our Father, while God is our loving Father, he is also in heaven, which means he is above us. He is transcendent. He is uh, not like us. And so that's actually going to lead us into the next section and the first request here. Your name be honored as holy. So the next point is the vertical concerns. It's the vertical concerns and the horizontal concerns. And this is not, this is, there's some overlap here, but these first three requests have to do with the divine plan, the divine name, things like that. Your name be honored as holy. In the Old Testament, the name of God is very important. It stands in for his person and his character. One of the Ten Commandments, even, involves misusing the divine name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The follower of Jesus not only reveres the name of God, but desires that the name of God be revered everywhere and prays expectantly for this to become more of a reality in his own life and in the world. Your name be honored as holy. They ask, why would, we, why would we have to pray this? Isn't God's name already holy? Well, yes. But this is about the posture. This is about the posture of the one who is praying. Uh, the one who is praying desires this. And even though the one who prays might understand, yes, God's name is already holy, we don't need to make it holy or it doesn't depend on us in a very real sense. But the posture of the one who prays is that they want to see the name of God revered. They want to see the name of God treated as holy. It's about the posture of the one who prays. The next section, your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of heaven was one of his primary concerns. 
His very first message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This coming kingdom is twofold. It involves restoration and renewal for creation and Christians, but judgment and destruction for unbelievers. The follower of Jesus looks expectantly towards the coming of the kingdom and works to advance the kingdom and prays intentionally for it to come. So again, the kingdom will come. We know this. The kingdom will come. God's will will be done. But the follower of Jesus in praying is expressing a desire for what God has already purposed to come to pass. And then the accomplishment of the will of God. Your will be done. This is even, this is very general. This is broad. It encompasses even the first two requests that his name be honored as holy and that his kingdom come. The will of God is an important theme in the New Testament and it encompasses everything that God purposes for his creation. This prayer is all-encompassing. It is comprehensive and is even a little bit dangerous because the follower of Jesus, by praying for this, by praying your will be done, even opens up their own life to the sovereignty of God completely. It's a little bit, a little bit scary because we know that God purposes all things and this includes things that we don't like. This includes some of the things that uh, either annoy us, scare us, things like that. But as here we must remember the very first words of the prayer, our Father, our Father, the omnipotent and sovereign God to whom we have entrusted our lives is also a loving Father who knows what we need and what is best for us. So when we, we can confidently pray, your will be done, knowing that whatever that will entails for us, uh, it is what is needed in our lives and in the world, and it is what is best for us. So those are the, the vertical requests. Thirdly, there's horizontal requests horizontal requests. Give us today our daily bread. We transition from the broad divine plan to the mundane, as it seems, the daily lives of Christians. Here it transitions to these daily individual lives. And the first of these involves provision for daily physical needs. In a country which is perhaps the most prosperous in the world, it is difficult to relate sometimes to the concern for such basic necessities as food, clothing, shelter, etc. The closest that many of us come to experiencing such hardship is probably college. The first few years living out of the house that we grew up in, and maybe even the first few years of marriage. You know, the, the life of ramen every night, uh, not knowing how you're going to pay for the next meal, much less the next semester. Uh, this is the closest that many of us come to experiencing such 
abject poverty. But we really can't imagine a world, in many cases, where this provision was in doubt for a majority of the population, or there was no real middle class, and the gap between the, the rich and the poor, the elite and the lower classes, was far wider than we can imagine today. Uh, for these people, material provision was a real concern that warranted a very specific request for provision. But the fact that we live in relative prosperity doesn't mean that we have less need for divine provision. We still rely on God for his provision in our lives, and we ought to pray for this even more in prosperity when we are tempted to trust in ourselves and our ability to provide for our own needs. Even those of us who have fairly comfortable full-time work, comfortable living situations, never really in doubt about where the next meal is going to come from, we need to pray this. Give us today our daily bread. Because we still depend on God. God can take it all away. That's his prerogative. No matter how prosperous we may get, we still need to pray this for this kind of provision because it acknowledges our complete and total dependence on him. The second thing that we're to pray for is forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness is the most central need of a fallen humanity. Tainted by sin and constantly committing sin, we often find ourselves in desperate need of forgiveness. Since the creator of the world that we live in is holy and justly punishes sin, it is no surprise then that Jesus tells his followers to ask for forgiveness from their heavenly father. We are all painfully aware of our need for forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't stop at telling his followers to ask forgiveness from God. He connects God's forgiveness with the forgiveness the, that humans offer to one another. In fact, the connection is so strong that in the verses immediately following the prayer, verses 14 through 15, which we'll talk about in a second, Jesus talks even more about forgiveness between human beings. Jesus expects his followers to be characterized by freely offering forgiveness to their fellow man. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And thirdly, deliverance from temptation. The final request in this model prayer is concerned with sin. The first part of the request asks God not to lead his child into temptation. This may seem a little problematic because in James we read that God doesn't tempt anyone. And also because Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Paul says that no temptation comes to a Christian except what he is able to endure by the help of the Holy Spirit. But all that means is that this request is one that is already fulfilled. God will not allow a child of his child to enter into a trial or temptation without his help. 
even if we fall, it is not because God was not able to help, but because we refused it in the moment. It's not because we didn't have help from God, but because we refused it in the moment. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is part and parcel with the first one. These are very closely connected. The first part emphasizes the temptation. The second, the tempter. Deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is our most powerful defense in spiritual warfare because it puts us in direct communication with the only being in the universe who is able to defend us from the powers that work against his purposes. Think of it like a cry for help. If we find ourselves drowning, unable to swim, wouldn't we scream for help at the top of our lungs? Help, I'm drowning. We have to verbalize this request. We have to verbalize this cry for help. In the same way, prayers are cry for help, for deliverance from Satan, from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. And it's here that the, the model prayer concludes. This is what is called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, in Roman Catholic circles, it's called the Our Father, because of the first, first words, or the uh, Pater Noster in uh, the Latin that the church uses. Um, at the, the school, my day job is, uh, in my day job, we recite this prayer at least once a week because uh, the children have learned to say it in the Latin. So this is uh, an interesting, interesting uh, sermon for me to have to preach because this is a text that I recite with the students at least once a week, the, the Our Father, the Paternoster. This concludes the model prayer. But Jesus adds something. We might even think of this as an application from Jesus himself. And what Jesus chooses to focus on in this application, I think, is instructive for us as we think of how to apply this text. Verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. Hmm. So in this section, Jesus includes application. Even Jesus. The sermon, preached the sermon, applied the text. Verse 12, going back to the prayer, assumes that the one who asks for forgiveness has also forgiven others. There's an assumption there says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This has already happened. There's an assumption here that this has already taken place. Verses 14 to 15 add more explicit application. The follower of Jesus must forgive others. Pure and simple. It's a simple condition. And it's at first glance like it might teach conditional forgiveness. Now, from the clear teaching of Scripture, we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. When we read 
uh, Paul's epistles, um, and other places in the New Testament, we know salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. So what can these verses mean? Well, the fruit of the forgiven heart is forgiveness. The one who does not consistently forgive, by contrast, is unlikely to have been forgiven. James says that faith without works is dead. Jesus says that faith without forgiveness is dead. Forgiveness is central to the life of the Christian and of the church. Jesus consistently taught about forgiveness among his disciples, notably in the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is similarly strong in its uh, teaching on forgiveness. The unforgiving servant uh, owes the king a very, very large sum of money, uh, and the king, after the servant begs him to forgive his debt, forgives it, uh, and the servant, uh, rather than being uh, grateful for the forgiveness uh, that he received and eager to extend that forgiveness to others, immediately finds someone that owes him money, a relatively small sum of money, and threatens him until he pays it back. So the one who had just been forgiven is not inspired to offer forgiveness to others, uh, which for Jesus means that is he really forgiven if he refuses to offer that same forgiveness to others? It is fitting then that in his own application here, following this prayer, Jesus places the focus on forgiveness, and so should we. So the main application from this text, in addition to providing us a good model, a good structure for our own prayers, is to forgive and to be characterized by forgiveness. Um, this, is not, this is not easy. I can, I can think of uh, at least one or two people in my life right now who it's a struggle to forgive and keep on forgiving. But this is one of the most important teachings, I think, of Jesus, uh, especially in the life of the church, because in churches that are not characterized by forgiveness, um, it's where you see some of the worst, some of the worst behavior that comes out in Christian circles. Uh, if you, uh, being from, from the Bible Belt, can tell you that the churches, that churches in small towns, there's a, there's a reason why you have two or three Baptist churches in a town of maybe 2,000 people, maybe 1,000, 2,000 people. It's because somewhere along the line, someone developed a grudge or multiple people developed a grudge almost nine times out of ten someone developed a grudge refused to forgive began to plant the seeds of division and eventually you wind up with two churches where there had been one not not for any real good reason other than they couldn't stand to be in the same church with one another 
This is hugely significant, even for the body of Christ. We who have been forgiven must show forgiveness to others, especially those in the body of Christ. All right. And that's all I have. Let's pray.